My name's Naomi, let me add my welcome. Um, this evening I'd like to add a particular hello to those listening on Catch Up and online um, who've stayed away perhaps for some niggling little symptoms that you would normally ignore. On behalf of those of us in more vulnerable groups to what is going on out there, I'm very grateful and we are very grateful, so thank you. Um, but we are not deviating from the programme and in my front line I'm an English teacher so I'm going to tell you that the best thing to do in times of trouble is find a really good story and that's what we've got this evening. We're going to turn and have a look at this particular chapter in the really good story and what it is that we can draw from it. Let me pray before we turn back to Esther 7. Father thank you for your word. Thank you that you convey these really, really great stories that can help us to understand you, your purposes, ourselves, and how to follow you better. I pray you would speak through me this evening as we look at this chapter. Amen. So if this were a serial, you would get at this point, um, it would probably be the actor playing Haman, as this would be his last episode, um, it is Sean Bean in my mind. I don't know if that's the case for anybody else, the English actor who's got to die. But he's, um, he's going to read this at this point previously on Esther. So how have we got to this point? Okay, a very quick recap. Lots of the Jewish people are still in exile in Susa under King Xerxes. His wife displeases him and he wants a new one. So he decides that any attractive young virgins in the city should be brought and isolated for a very long time, um, longer than any of us are probably going to have to, from their family. Esther is one of them. She pleases the king and becomes queen. Unfortunately, the king isn't very good at making decisions and appoints a advisor, Haman, in this case, who we read about in this chapter, who becomes very powerful and decides he doesn't like the Jews because Esther's kinsperson, Mordecai, refuses to bow to him. So he orders their annihilation. He gets away with it because Xerxes is persuadable and Haman has a lot of power. Esther then, who has as yet not revealed that she is Jewish, is the only one who can, in the position that they're in, save her people. She risks her life to get the king's attention she invites him to a first banquet. That happens. He clearly enjoys himself, and she invites him to a second. And that is where we pick up our story. And I think I've left the clicker down there. <laughs> Ellen's being very kind and not touching it because I anti-backed it before we started. <laughs> so what, what is going on then in our chapter? So we've got Esther's second banquet. Alcohol and food, how we get things done in Susa, it seems. And Esther waits for the king to repeat his question to her, what is your request, what is your petition, for the third time. He's already asked twice. This time, she decides, it's the right moment to present that petition, to identify herself with her people, and to explain what's about to happen to them. The king is in the right place at the right time at this point, as is Esther, nice and, and merry, enjoying the banquet, 
and absolutely furious that anybody would threaten his wife particularly. I'm not convinced at this point that he particularly cares about the rest of the nation, but it's working because of Esther. Haman is blamed for all of this, and it gets very bad <laughs> for Haman. Now, the, the NIV have helpfully, unhelpfully, I think, given this chapter the title, Haman Impaled. And whilst that is the final point, it isn't actually what really is going on in this chapter. So we're going to start with the ending, draw a few brief points from that, and then focus on the real story here, which is Esther's. How does she get to this point? How does she get the king to this point in the first six verses? But I couldn't resist... Um, this is from Hamlet, so as an English teacher, um, hoist with his own petard is often... Especially the commentators like to use this at the top of their little bit on this chapter. Um, it literally means to be blown up with your own bomb. Um, and it... it comes with, to a lot of, with a lot of sayings. So let's just deal with Haman's end um, briefly. So it mirrors that which he wanted for Mordecai. He wanted to kill Mordecai in this way. If he'd been obeying that which as a child I was taught was the golden rule, do unto others as you'd want them to do to you, um, this would not have happened to him. It does seem cruel. It does seem to be something that particularly in our day and age and this side of the resurrection we want to draw away from and say that's not how we deal with people. We don't get revenge. But it isn't Esther who does it. She doesn't say that's what should happen. She allows it to happen though. Basically because his plotting against the Jews was so determined, so evil, he had to be removed. But just a point to make here, if we fall into the trap of enjoying the story a little too much and getting carried away with gloating at the death of the evil villain, we do fall into his trap. We end up gloating at somebody else's demise and starting to feel the things that he felt and the way he went. So there are the key ideas about his death. But my focus, and our focus this evening is on Esther in verses 1 to 6. How did she get to this point? What is it she had to do? And what are we going to look at this evening? So I tried to sum it up. Um, and I'm going to read this a couple of times. What is it Esther had to do? So she had to plan and successfully execute a challenging conversation with a difficult, powerful authority figure in order to convey truth and appeal for justice. I'm going to say that again. She had to plan and successfully execute a challenging conversation with a difficult, powerful authority figure to convey truth and appeal for justice. Now, there's a situation that we might find today. Our situations are, I dare to hope, unlikely to have such high stakes or such potentially fatal outcomes but Esther's successful here. The Lord uses her, he works through her. And we can learn from the principles she uses to put together this, this plan, execute this conversation, and achieve justice. So I spent some time thinking about situations that we might find ourselves in, less high stakes, that 
would perhaps mirror or be places we could use the sorts of examples that Esther gives us here. So these are my potential frontline examples. There will be plenty of others. I wondered if anyone had ever had to have a difficult conversation with their child's teacher. I've been on the receiving end of a couple of those. Um, has there been a difficulty in the playground, an injustice in the classroom, something the teacher perhaps should have done something about? You want to have that conversation and not wreck those relationships. I wonder if you've ever needed to be part of a group with some colleagues to deal with a problem with the way that, that management is doing things. I wonder if you've needed to deal with an injustice or difficulty in your neighbourhood or with the local authority. I wondered if anybody had had to deal with, with housing association issues, perhaps on behalf of CAP clients. I wonder if anybody had had to get involved in dealing with issues with, with housing, certainly for Hartford Parklands, that occurs to me. I wonder if you've ever needed to speak to your boss about an injustice, maybe that's happening to you, but I know from chatting to people and from being part of a small group that often people here at CBC are wonderfully the colleagues that somebody would turn to if there was something happening for them. And you might be speaking to somebody in authority about an injustice that's happening to someone else. I wonder if you've needed to deal with a situation in any of our front lines where your ethics are being compromised and you need to do something about that in that meeting with that authority figure. These aren't exhaustive and I hope that you can think perhaps of situations that you might come across where you would have to do something similar. Now obviously this evening I'm mic'd up, my name goes out next to this and this goes out. So I'm not going to be sharing very specific situations that I've dealt with for very obvious reasons. But similar has happened. And I've dealt with it in various ways. Sometimes using these principles that I think Esther draws us to, and sometimes very much not. We're going to draw this evening on three principles that show, I think, Esther as the model for some key New Testament instructions on godly living when presented with this kind of thing. None of these are what we'd call rocket science. None of them are particularly original. But the reasons that I, for one, often fail to apply them are when I'm in this sort of situation, I'm angry, and I want it dealt with now. When crises come, we see injustice when we need to face authority figures, we act fast. We don't think about it. We only need to look at social media to see everybody else is the same. We like hasty responses. We click reply, or worse, reply all. <laughs> or we just post where anyone can see it. So the priorities I'm going to talk about might seem obvious, but the strength to apply them is what comes from God, and we need to remember to ask for that. So hopefully you've got an example in mind, perhaps a version of one of mine, something that you've faced, something that someone you know might be facing. And we're going to look at Esther as this model and how she deals with these tricky situations, drawing on three 
key principles because it's the right number for a sermon. So, the first one. Listen carefully and patiently wait for the right moment. And here I think Esther models what James tells us. In James chapter 119, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Easier said than done. What does Esther do? Well, she listens. She learns what the question will be in advance. By the time she comes to answer the king, she already knows exactly what he's going to ask. She's had time to think about it. She doesn't press reply the first time the question gets asked. She takes her time with that question. I expect she was very distressed. I expect she was very angry. But she's taken time out. The, um, the, the book itself in Esther tells us that she's taken time out to fast. The implication, of course, very strongly is that that also involves significant amounts of prayer. So she's taken time out to fast and pray, and she's been patient, even in her distress and anger. She's thought about the timing and got it exactly right. And then the second and third principle Esther embodies can be drawn out, I think, of two halves of one of Jesus' instructions to his disciples. He sends them out, he says, as sheep amongst wolves. And he tells them, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. I'm going to draw on my favourite theologian. Sorry, Alistair, not you. Um, (laughs) To to help us to understand um, this verse a little bit and to think about Esther. He says, Christians often find it easy to be one or the other, but seldom both. Without innocence, shrewdness becomes manipulative. Without shrewdness, innocence becomes naivety. Though we face different crises and problems to those of the first disciples, and in our case this evening of Esther, we still need that finely balanced character, reflecting so remarkably, that should read, that of Jesus himself. So how does Esther, in her practical way in this chapter, model this balance for us? Shrewdness and innocence. And I start with the shrewdness, because it comes first, and that's our second principle, be as shrewd as snakes. So how is she as shrewd as a snake? How can we be in our lives in our situations. So the first thing she does is know her audience. She's dealing with Xerxes. And the first thing I note here is that uh, he's a fan of a banquet. It's what he likes to use for pretty much everything we've learned so far. So what do you do if you want to, to get his attention? You throw him a banquet. And you think about how you speak to your audience. You would need to show deference being Esther, obviously, in terms of keeping your life. But look particularly at the way she phrases her response to him. Even when he said, up up to half the kingdom you can have, she doesn't say, oh, thank you very much. Clearly, I have found favour with you. She turns it back to, oh, well, if I have, if I've found favour with you, your majesty, 
And if it pleases you, grant me my life. She thinks very carefully about how to address that audience. She also prepares properly. I think in our haste and in our rush to get things done and see justice, I wonder whether we always do that. And in this case, it's about the food and wine. Clearly, she did it well enough the first time. He's come back for a second. He's the king. He doesn't have to do that. So she knows how to throw a good banquet. She's watched. She's listened. She'd got, she's got the right help. And she also thinks about her answer to the question, which we will come to. She honours the conventions of the world she's in. She chooses where to compromise. Now, I did a little bit of research on the, uh, the food that she would have had to serve, what was banquet food in Susa, and it, it, it's sketchy what we know from what archaeologists have dug up in terms of plates and cups and from some Greek sources, but certainly not all of it would have been kosher. She's picked her battles. She's happy to serve quite a lot of wine. She honours the conventions. And earlier in the, in the book, we noticed that she honours the conventions in terms of her clothing choices as well. If she wants Xerxes to take her seriously as queen, she needs to do things the way that they're done in the palace. And I wonder if that applies to us too. If we want to be taken seriously in certain meetings, do we need to dress appropriately? Do we need to honour those clothing conventions that are expected, if we want to make a difference, if we want to be heard, let's not make it about what we're wearing, unless that is the particular battle you've, you need to fight and God's called you to fight, don't fight it with your clothes. And finally, she takes considerable care with her word choices. Words are powerful, and she doesn't use them lightly. The timbre in the Hebrew here, from the um, commentators, I'm not fluent, um, is that she picks up the words from the edict that Haman has published, and she repeats them back. And she's thought very carefully about how she needs to get this across. If we look at verse 4, for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If you handed me as an es that as an essay, I'd tell you that's three words that mean the same thing. But she needs those three words that mean the same thing. She needs to point out that they haven't just been sold as slaves, that they're going to be completely wiped out. So she picks up those words that come from the edict. She repeats them back, and she's using words with which the king would have been very familiar. She's thought about this idea, if we'd just been sold as slaves, which has already happened to her population pretty much, she would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Knows her audience again, thinks about those words, prepares properly. She makes it very clear. Note that she is then also quite careful with her response when the king says, who is he and where is he that has done this? So if we look really carefully... She says, we've been sold as slaves. If I want to be picky about the verb choice, the person who did the selling wasn't Haman. It was Xerxes. 
She doesn't choose that answer. She answers what he's actually asking. Who's going to cause the annihilation? And she doesn't pick that battle. It would not be sensible to turn back to him and say, actually, it's you who sold us, but to him. He needs to be completely out of it. She picks very carefully what she says. She's thought about her words. She narrows it down. She manages to say in very few words exactly what is needed. She makes Haman the king's enemy as well as her own. But she gives the highlights. She doesn't need the whole story. And maybe this is one for me, and it doesn't apply necessarily to everybody, but I wonder whether sometimes I give an elongated version of absolutely everything because I think the person in front of me needs to understand absolutely every nuance of everything to get my point. He doesn't. She has a summary. It's all that's needed. He's a busy man with his, well, his wine at this point. Um, But she knows where to stop. She knows what information is required. It's all said. She doesn't need to carry on. She doesn't need to labour the point. So I'll stop too, and labouring that particular point. But that careful thought. So she's shrewd. She's thought through. But what stops her then being manipulative, as in N.T. Wright's idea? If she's just this, what stops her being manipulative? How is she as modelling for us this innocence as doves? She's humble. She's not self-seeking. Now, she's been told that for the third time, even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Now, she would have grown up with the history of her ancestors. Great, Yeah, go all the way back. She's from the tribe of Benjamin. So his brother Joseph, she will have grown up with his history. He became second to the king of Egypt, lots of wealth. There's precedent here. I'm Esther, I'm thinking, and maybe this is again just me being selfish. Well, it's the third time he's offered me half the kingdom. What could I do with half the kingdom? I could just put all the Jews in my half of the kingdom And I'd be in charge of it, so they wouldn't be annihilated, and that would be fine. Maybe that's what God wills, and there's definitely precedent in the Bible. I can make it about that. Maybe that's what God wants. Maybe I should be having half the kingdom. He said it three times after all. What good could I do with that? But she doesn't. She ignores that temptation. She knows what she's been called to do. She's spent that time in prayer and fasting and she knows what her role is. There's the innocence. She goes, no, that's not for me right now. She doesn't exceed it. So she ignores that attractive offer that comes differently to what she's planned and prepared for and the place God has put her and where he wants her in this meeting. If we stay tuned for chapters 8, 9 and 10 there's some reward in there for her too but that's not the point here that's not what she's seeking she's seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness later all these things shall be added unto you but at this point she knows she sticks to this purpose and plan 
I wonder if that temptation sometimes comes for us in meetings like this. Not quite like this, as I've said, but dealing with an authority figure, especially if we're dealing on behalf of someone else. If we're then offered something, do we think, oh, we can fix it for them if we, do, if we take that? We'll take the lesser thing. We'll take the more attractive offer for us, the easier route. She could have said, yes, thank you very much. I'll take half the kingdom. Not admitted that she was Jewish and tried to hide the Jews, but that's not the point. That's not what she was supposed to be doing. She stays innocent. So what's the result? God works in that situation to give an outcome that's more than she could have asked or imagined. So there's an issue after she's revealed Haman as this villain and the king leaves the room, is the king needs an out. What unfortunately she's done is expose the fact that the king's taking really bad advice from really bad advisors. And we need to distance the king from Haman's edict and be able to get rid of Haman while Xerxes saves face. Krish Kandaya in his chapter on, on Esther um, in Paradoxology asks us to think about God as a director behind the camera while this is going on. And I love this scene. The king goes out. Haman decides to plead for his life. The commentators are divided between whether men who were not the king or the, the, the husband of any royalty should be seven metres or seven feet or seven steps away from any me um, female member of the royal family, but they're pretty clear that his proximity to her was completely inappropriate. He shouldn't have been there. But the king leaves the room, and in pleading for his life, Haman ends up in this incredibly compromising position, just at that moment where the king walks back in again. The tension rises. Haman is in fact then innocent of the crime that the king accuses him of, molesting his wife while he's in the building. But God's directed the situation to allow the king to get rid of Haman without losing face. Esther can't have foreseen that. And that line that we sang in Waymaker, even, though you can't, even when I can't see it, you're working, is what's happening here. God's bringing that conclusion. And then finally, there's still an aftermath to deal with. There are still three chapters, without wishing to do spoilers for the next few weeks. The removal of Haman doesn't solve everything. The removal of Haman doesn't remove the edict. And the removal of Haman doesn't mean that Esther isn't still trapped, in the, imprisoned effectively in the palace, at the mercy of the king, and that her people aren't still very much in exile with a ruined Jerusalem. It doesn't solve everything. When victory comes, which it does here, we still have to deal with that aftermath, with the clear-up. But we can move forward. When victory comes, we need to remember that there is more to come, that we need to keep praying, that we need to keep expecting.
that we need to keep hoping. So, when we have times of crises, do we do these things? Do we begin with prayer and keep praying as we know Esther did with the fasting and asked others to pray and fast for her? Do we listen? Do we take time? Do we know and respect our audience despite how different they might be from us? Do we stay humble? Do we expect God to act through us and for us even when we can't see it? And do we remember that there will be an aftermath to that and keep relying on him to help us in that clear up. Can I pray? Father, thank you for the example in this chapter of Esther. Thank you for the ways in which she followed. She lived for you in a difficult place among people who didn't know you. Lord, in our front lines, in our day-to-day lives, may we listen. May we show that respect. Make us shrewd as snakes and innocent as, as doves, Lord, and help us to follow your lead in the way that we do that. Amen.